Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And the stars are aligned, the time is right, and we are back. And uh, uh, let's get right to it. We are not alone. We have some special guests joining us in the virtual Sanctum Soundorum today. Graham, why don't you give us a lowdown on what is happening? This week, we have two guests, stars of their own podcast. We First, we have R. Alex Murray, actor, musician, comedian. He's, he's everywhere. I mean, a children's entertainer. Uh, he is, yeah, introduce yourself, Alex. Oh, uh, hello. Yeah, that's me. That sounds like most of the stuff that I do. Yeah, I, uh. <laughs> I, you know, I bartend some as well, um, you know, because all those other things that you do in Brooklyn usually means bartending as well. Uh, yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. This is great. Uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us. And with him, as always, is Kirk Battle, lawyer by day, author and hot sauce maker by night from South Carolina, creator of These Hollowed Halls, Space Lawyer, Sam Shade and Cthulhu of the Deep South. Oh man, I'm racking them up. Yeah, I um, I've uh, happy to be here. I've been, uh, you know, I've got a day job too, but um, self publishing is a you know booming industry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, um, so what the deal is? I think like to get to the nut of it is that like I was self publishing my own books and then decided like I'd rather get some like more listeners. So I started turning them into podcasts and uh, Cthulhu in the deep South is a horror series that um, Alex narrates a section of it. We have other actors come in and each one's a different POV at a different point in history of the South during and after the civil war. Uh, it gets into a lot of slavery and Lovecraft monsters show up and you try to have that good history blend in a setting that is incredibly dark for arguably one of the darkest periods in American history. Uh, and then you add some Lovecraft monsters to lighten it up. <laughs> I like that as the contrast. I, oh man, I have a million questions, but I just want to touch on this briefly before we go ahead. So the name Kirk battle is probably the coolest name a human being has ever had. Is oh, there, thank you, yeah. Is there actually a story behind that, or is it just that I'm so green with envy that it uh, that it seems like a city upon a hill to me? It It's super, it's a bunch of, like, southern family names. Um, the Kirk family is big at, down in Beaufort County, and I've, I'm not sure how, I think it's like a cousin of a cousin or something, but my mom was a big fan of them, so... I took their name as my middle name, and then Battle is uh, Dad's family was not politely asked to leave Ireland um, <laughs> and sent to an English colony in Canada, where they waited until the Civil War was over, and then they came down south and bought a bunch of land at really cheap rates, and uh, can't can't seem to get rid of us. <laughs> well, I, bet, I bet you just have that story right above your law practice, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, because well, yeah, people are like, where's hey, battle? I remember when you were all on fire? We showed up to fucking lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, well, you know, they always ask about battle, and I'm like, I mean, it's Scottish. I, it's Scotch-Irish. Like, I, I don't know, man. They weren't very creative. And the other guy was named, like, Kill Guy and uh, Smat- <laughs> Mr. Smash Heads. 
<laughs> Seamus won't f off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mick, Mick punch and Mick kick were, uh, you know, taken. <laughs> so Kirk, I just want to ask quickly uh, about the Cthulhu of the deep, uh, considering some of the uh, controversy, especially in modern times around Lovecraft and, and race, it seems like a, a sort of a fraught mix, the way the, the types of stories you're telling. Was that something that you felt needed to be delved into with those with the Lovecraft uh, verse? Well, I've got to give the credit to Victor Lavelle, who is an author who wrote a story on the Ballad of Black Tom, which was about uh, racism in 1920s Harlem. And the the combination just blew me away of combining Lovecraft with the oppression. And you would kind of, he would like bounce around it, like rather than being just um, what can be a really intense recounting of some of the injustices people faced back then. If you like add some like sci-fi elements to it, I think it makes it, I don't know what the word is, uh, you know, palatable or anything like that. Um, but I just thought it was fun. And I was doing a bunch of historical fiction research for these hallowed halls. And I thought, let's let's try this out. And so book one of the series is kind of a lab test where I just, is this palatable? Am I going to like piss people off? And, you know, once that um, I passed it around and got really positive feedback was when I really started driving into the series. But yeah, it's scary. You know, every time a book comes out, I'm always kind of like, I wonder if I like if this was the one that I like did it wrong. You have to always be conscious of that. Understand that if your book does get reamed for something like that, you just kind of have to have faith that like readers will understand you had good intentions and hope they uh, complain about the book and not you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's uh that's a pretty cool way to look at it. So how did you two uh, hook up to start making the podcast? I mean, we went to college together, uh, so we had our own history in the deep south, uh, on top of the mountain, <laughs> being weird and uh, reading books and screaming at each other. And I guess I mean we were really just like we were on a call. And actually, I uh, I think I remember it, Kirk. <laughs> Kirk helped me out with exactly what <laughs> yeah. got said, but I think you said something like Murray. Your life's too silly. <laughs> There's too much. Like you're, I was like a stand-up doing all stand-up comedy, and I was like singing to kids. At that point, I think I was doing 14 children's sing-alongs a week, uh, Oof. which was Oof. yeah, yeah. It takes a toll. Eventually, you can only ask kids to shake their sillies out so many times before you're like, I got no more mother effing sillies. It's all, it's uh, all gone. <laughs> yeah, it's all gone. I'm out of sillies, man. And like you, like weirdly need to like look at like something dark to recharge. And uh, yeah, I guess Kirk just had this. He like like he said he had it, and he was like, and I had just started podcasting. And as y'all well know, the second you become podcasters, you become insufferable, and all you will say <laughs> to any of your friends is podcast, 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 podcast. And uh, yeah, so Kirk was like, well. I've got a bunch of words and you've got a microphone. Like, why don't we just, you know, why don't we just put this out into the universe? And we, it, it was really well received, which is fun. Um, Cause it can be an absolutely, it can be a, a really uh, possessive fandom. Right. Yeah. Nothing, but nothing but nice just things to say about Lovecraft fans. You know, I mean, the ones who've like listened to it have all been like, Oh, this is neat. And 
I mean, the, I think the way you do that, or at least my approach has always been to just be respectful of the mythos. Like, as long as, because it's not like it's like this huge, it's not like asking someone to write like a Warhammer 40K fan fiction. That there, those guys are have a lot of stuff to absorb. With Lovecraft, it's like there's like three or four collections you should read. You should read his biography and know the history, and then you know you can comfortably write something that does the mythos correctly, and then you just put it in a cool setting. HBO should call us anytime now for our television deal. I I <laughs> I just screwed it, didn't I? I oh shit! <laughs> what do you mean? Only read three or four of his books and learn his life history? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, you don't have his picture framed up on the wall. Uh, no, I, I do kind of want to zoom in on that because I, I mean, Lovecraft is has been popular for a long time, um, but I think the like. A lot of authors from that era, there's sort of an excuse made where it's, well, it was a different time. They treated people differently back then, you know, like, like, of course, Lord of the Rings doesn't have a lot of strong female characters because they started writing it in 1914. Like it was, but Lovecraft kind of is especially over the edge with some of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think more and more people are realizing it and reading some of your stuff and listening to Cthulhu in the Deep South, it almost in a way comes across not as apologetic, but as a like, it's like you're trying, I, I felt like a lot of these characters were sort of like the other side of the characters that Lovecraft wrote himself as to sort of say that, yeah, not everybody was like these characters, like some people saw that this was ridiculous. And I wonder how that like, I mean, you said everyone loves it, but it, it sort of seems like that would sort of be like a thumb in, in Howard's eye. I don't think, um, I think we that have, any... We have had some negative, we've had oh, some people be like, boo, Howard would hate this, and, you know. Or he's like, no, I, I remember there was a guy saying that Lovecraft would be rolling in his grave yeah, if he read this. The worst one we've gotten, and it's like, and then I'm glad you were a close personal friend of his, so... <laughs> yeah. No, let's see. Let's let's talk about criticisms. Um, I think the ma- the one that stuck out to me the most that was like a general, like if someone wants to yell at me, like you don't need me to be there. Just like post it, man. Um, but the one that was the most interesting to me was a guy who read them and was like, these aren't really Lovecraft stories; they're historical fiction. And I, I no, I had to give him that. I was like, that's yeah. that's true. It's historical fiction with like some with a Lovecraft coat of paint on it. It doesn't it doesn't go nearly into the same levels of nihilism. It's not interested in I I I I think only book one ends with like an existential no book two does two, no, they, book two is brutal. Book two is end. pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a rough ending. I really think I mean I I've at this point I I I have edited all of them and, and produced all of them and worked with the actors and like also Toby who voices uh, it, one of my good friends, uh, Toby who voices book two also like she would like uh, she would like time her psych meds out a little weird so that when we were recording, she would be teetering on the edge of like really needed to take them again, um, which is some method acting nonsense that like <laughs> you know the unions wouldn't be okay with us doing yeah, but, uh, but like but like and it's you know it's not weird it was just one of those things where she like she really like dug down into a lot of her own stuff for it and like you can you can hear it in the in the performance it is it is tough 
so like I will say that I also will like argue about this stuff. Like I had one guy like correct me about the Carcosa thing, and I was like, dude, I read the King in Yellow. Carcosa is it's it's everything. It's like a big broad concept. It's not just the one city in the play. And I don't know why I tried to engage with that, but um I I will also art like I have opinions about how the dream world stuff works and what Lovecraft's saying. So I also will argue about it. I don't know. Um I think that what we're trying to say is that I'm I'll take people arguing with me about how I did the mythos or using Lovecraft's universe to talk about these characters over, um, you know, just boo or something like that. Like, Oh, for sure. I will also say that it's called Cthulhu in the deep South, not Lovecraft in the deep South. It's not Lovecraft country. It's a, it's more concerned with the like animals that he put into the world than, uh, than like aping, you know, cause the, what's his, the, that, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Kirk, the Conan, Conan author, Robert, Robert Howard. Howard. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that like Robert Howard that like, that wrote a whole bunch of Cthulhu. They don't read like Lovecraft stories. I mean, they're nihilistic and brutal, but like, you know, it's, it's a different author playing with the same animals. Yeah. I, I, I like that. Like it's not, um, I mean, you know, Lovecraft's not a character in the books. Uh, I just took the monsters, man. Cthulhu's in it. Um, Shoggoths show up. Uh, I don't want to give too much away because sometimes it's a surprise which monster it is. Yeah, fair enough. I was about to start listing things from books four and five where it starts to get really like your bigger picture is starting to evolve. But that's, yeah. that's worth keeping. You're you're right. That's worth people going in. So it is a continuing thing. They're not like individual stories. It's something that you've, you're building to a bigger, you know, series and a bigger conclusion. I think there's there one were, more and we're out. <laughs> oh man. Are you saying Alex is done? Yeah. There's what, what there is, is sorry, you're the one I, who's been, had your head in that portal for four years. So like, look, uh, I don't know. No, I need a break. I know I'm writing a fantasy series after this. Uh, I'm going on break. So like I've, I've been writing historical fiction set in reconstruction South for eight years now. I've got these Hallowed halls, which is coming out soon. Um, that's going to be a podcast series with like weekly episodes. Yeah. That's got, all, we also just spent a year, Kirk and I producing, well, we just finished the recording process process of 77 chapters of like just whoa. full on his, the historical fiction with about what do you think man 40 characters in it so I think it's a, been a it's yeah. been a long year for the two of us uh yeah recording it's going to be awesome Ooh. um but I'm about to start uh, writing music for that and putting episodes together it's going to be it's going to be good stuff the and so then that one and then Cthulhu in the deep south and then I also wrote a murder mystery that um is is a little too dark I don't know I I'm at a point where I'm not sure if I can sell it, uh, if you want to know what it's about, Google William Gilmore Sims and have some nightmares. Uh, I'll leave it at that, Great. man. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Good pitch. The, um, but no, book six is going to be the end of this cycle. Like book six will wrap, it'll end some night, some like nice cliffhangers, but they're soft ones. Like, or he or he sailed off into the sunset. You know, you'd be fine with that too. And then we'll kills wrap Cthulhu, punches Cthulhu right in the face, <laughs> kills him dead. <laughs> they have a they have a samurai fight. Yeah. Oh, but we'll, I'm on board for that. 
but no, it's going to be a good finale, man. Don't miss it. I'm my, um, the editor I work with for the Cthulhu series uh, with book six. She's, she like never says anything. She's like the ultimate, like teacher who just hands it back to you with your markup. And on this one, she was like, that was a cool ending. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was very proud. (laughs) I, I mean, you you have nothing to be ashamed of for the first five. I loved them. I don't know if I made that clear, um, but these uh, these were a blast to read and a blast to listen to. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, thank you. Oh, absolutely. Um, I do kind of want to get to your lists, but I also feel like with Hallowed Halls coming up, I know that's such a bigger project. That's the the U ten book, right? That's that was the biggie. I that was um, it's if you've ever read Kinfall, it's the Pillars of the Earth. That's that's was my big inspiration, but it's about the college Alex and I went to Sewanee, which is in Tennessee, and it's about the building of the university. They founded the university in October of 1865. And yeah, oops. (laughs) And a month later, civil war breaks out. Well, a few months later, but like that's when secession fired up. The school was destroyed during the war. And these guys, these professors came back and um, former the freed people started coming for work, and you had all these war widows coming, and it's them building the university and just the drama of Reconstruction South. And uh, one of my jokes that Alex and I have about these books is, um, it was not quite so poignant when we started. And oh boy, like the <laughs> the whole political and cultural chaos that we're living through today that I mirrors reconstruction South in many ways. Um, it's a lot more relevant now than when I started. And that's exciting. I recorded a chapter about a riot at a polling place uh, on January 6th of 2020. Oh my and God. then I like, went out into the world and was going Whoa. about my business. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it pretentious to do the, those who fail to study history, do to repeat it, etc. Because no, no, like you know, point, the dictionary, yeah. there it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about Cthulhu too, is that Cthulhu in the deep South is that every time the Yith, every time the Yith look at like what's going on, they're like, idiots, God, like, <laughs> no, they're like doom is approaching inevitably. Do you, don't you hear the footsteps? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Stop this. Well, I mean, in a way, I'm sorry to hear that, but also in a way, that's pretty cool. That's going to add a lot of a lot of weight, a lot of I don't want to say value to the book, but it, it sounds like that you've you know, unintentionally discovered a message in there. Maybe oh, a couple. It it's just um it just has a lot of layers to it, but I think one a lot of it is about how hard it is to build a university, how hard it is to run one, and what from an administrative perspective what those people deal with. But then on another level, you know, it's just Reconstruction South. It's a big soap opera. So my that was the thing I told Alex a lot when we were recording was like, it's it's just a British soap opera. Some of the characters are really deep and engaging. There's also like cartoon characters. There's comic relief. You try to have like a variety to keep it going. Yeah, for a while we had this thing where, I mean, I did, I do about, God, like 30 southern accents in the thing and uh and like eventually kirk and i just had a, a running joke where he was like i don't know man just pinch your nose and like <laughs> say the words like just and it, it's it was the first time i've taken on a project of like that many different 
people. So it was a lot of fun to just like figure out how to keep 35 people alive in my head. Um, really eight or nine really big important ones that like I had to be emotionally informed to like do. And, uh, and then a lot of secondary characters and the secondary characters started to get real fun. Once I, we like landed on the soap opera of it all, um, there, you know, I just, and I just started pulling, I was like, all right, well, let's get my, let's get my choir teacher from seventh grade up in here. All right, (laughs) here, here he is. And he's got some stuff to say. Um, (laughs) All right, guys. Well, let's get into the list before we, uh, we, we lose track of that. Uh, so you've each brought a list of five, uh, end of the world scenarios ah yes yeah light <laughs> light chill stuff <laughs> <laughs> i mean the the nature of the show is we tend to go by top five so it's interesting <laughs> to find what would you consider to be you know the top like is it the most exciting end of the world scenario is it the most efficient a- or brutal <laughs> I'm a man of many appetites, so mine are broken up by like pop culture into into the world. I like my personal fantasy into the world, and then you know some of them. Look, by definition, it's an oppressive topic, but to me, when Alex and I agreed on it, I was like, I don't want to just like keep listing off Lovecraft stuff. So let's do something that's oppressive and make it funny. And then I, you'll get yeah the rhythm. I, I mean, I one of one of mine that I've brought is I think one of the one of the funniest, arguably one of the. I mean, it's a just a hilarious movie, but I mean, <laughs> it's pretty dark. Um, yeah, so you can be you can be funny in the apocalypse. I mean, Doctor Strangelove <laughs> is one of mine. I we, we can get to it, but I mean, yeah, it's funny pretty much the whole way through. And every time they all start laughing, they're like, oh, "Oops." Um, okay <laughs> so the the format of our lists when we do something like this is it's a dueling list so uh-huh. we'll start with the fives and and you'll go back and forth one will do a five the other will do a five then four and four and we'll move up if you have if you both have the same apocalypse on your list which i guess is possible then who will wait till we get to the one that's higher on the list so let's okay. say, I mean, we know one of uh, one of Alex's is Dr. Strange. Right, well, he gets to it and Kirk has it higher up. We'll just wait till we'll, Kirk will be like, oh, I got that higher in my list. And then we'll get to it when when Kirk uh, has, reveals it on his list. Does that make sense? Word. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, uh, why don't you start us off, Alex? What's uh, number five for you? Well, I mean, I guess number five on my list is the reawakening of the idiot god Azathoth, who is going to, you know, come alive and swallow the universe whole um, because, you know, Lovecraft. Um, so I, I, I figured I figured he had to make it on the list. And so I'd, I'd put him I'd put him at the end. Um, Azathoth. I'm like, I so for those of you unfamiliar with the Lovecraft mythos, Azathoth is like this central chaos God at the center of the universe. And it, it, chaos isn't even a term. It like doesn't know anyone exists. No, it doesn't it's care. Blind, deaf and dumb. It has no, uh, yeah, it's the opposite. Like if, if any of y'all know anything about a Braxis, it's sort of the, the other side of that coin. Um, and so I don't, <laughs> what's a Braxis? A Braxis is the, the God above God in the like Christian, Gnostic traditions. Um, he's, you know, the God of Abraham's like actual God. 
Um, who's it's like, also a Santana album, I think. Yes, it absolutely <laughs> is a Santana album. Well, and and uh, like the the well, the Gnostics got b- brought back. Um, I mean, kind of. I don't know when Lovecraft like re-entered the zeitgeist, but like uh, Gnosticism like re-entered in the like late sixties and early seventies with like New Age culture and like woo-woo nonsense and and people being like, "Hey, you guys, what about f the church?" What about screw the establishment and we can like we can like get spiritual and goofy and weird on our own. Thanks, Ken Kessie, for all the acid. And uh, yeah. Um, wow, I'm learning so much. So so this isn't Abraxas. I mean, I know this isn't the topic. But they have Abraxas, they have neither and nothing opposite, to do with each other yeah. other than like Abraxas is like super keyed in and sort of watching and seeing if like human beings can figure out how to regain the spark of divinity that the idea of matter stole from us. <laughs> I can't keep going down that road or I'll talk for an hour. Uh, and then Azathoth is just like, like sort of like began with the, the beginning of the, the, the universe. And he's just sitting at the middle of everything. And eventually he will wake up, notice everything and just absorb it. Um, so is he just like an animal? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, I mean, I like that description because it's just like the biggest thing Lovecraft could imagine, right? Like right. human beings don't matter. Planets don't matter to it. It's surrounded by all these screaming demigods who have to keep yep. it to sleep by like playing flutes. And so I think that the better to me, Azathos was always that like the universe will end unless this stupid ritual goes for eternity. Yeah. There's a bit of the, like, uh, it's a re- cynical set the thing in the bunker from lost. Right. Yeah, right. Like, I was just yeah. going to say, yeah. And so it's like this oppressive tick tock, tick tock, you know, none of this is going to matter as soon as Azathos wakes up. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, I rip a lot of that, th- um, imagery and themes off because, Cthulhu is like localized to just Earth. He's just a yeah. demigod. Azathoth is the universe, right? He's Galactus. Mm. All right. Now you're talking my language. Galactus. Yeah, it's like, yeah. like he Azathoth is inevitable in a way that Thanos can only hope to be. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So uh so would it be do we end up just getting like eaten by this thing and then like pooped out later? Like how, how disrespectful. I, we, I think we just end. It's all it's over, just man. over. There's no, I think yeah. that's what's, what's interesting about it is like, as opposed to some other, we'll get to some more like uh, poetic things for, for me is that like, nah, man, it's just over and there's nothing after it. And there's no, it's just done. Like, it won't it won't restart. It's just that's it. Existence ends, which if you try to wrap your mind around for a minute will hurt. <laughs> Does yeah. he eat himself? No, there's no there's no eating, man. I mean, like it's oh. like, um. well, I think he would go on to exist in other realities. Yeah, I guess he would just still be there. Right. I guess yeah. is, so is what is happens because he, like, like, he destroys everything. Is he beyond reality? Yeah, in, in typical Lovecraftian fashion, like he doesn't even exist by our definition of existing, because right. to exist, you have to occupy space and time, and oh. as thought doesn't. All right, guys, I'm going to have to lie down for the rest <laughs> exactly. of this. I got to. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah I, mean, I mean, it's a black hole, right? Like, yeah. when when you see drawings of Azathoth, it's a giant black hole or something, right? It doesn't I mean, he have gets, a... He looks like a sort of, like, black hole, like, uh, had a baby with, like, a lamprey and all that <laughs> art that I tend to, to see. Or, like, a you know, one of them Tremors worms. 
Um, so yeah, dar- darkness inevitability. I mean, cosmic horror is the like shorthand for that. It's just like doom and nothingness and the end. All right. Uh, off to a good start. I think, <laughs> uh, Kirk, do you want to go with, uh, with your number five? I'm going to, I'm going to get, they're going to be spoilers for like a 25 year old anime series, but my, one of my all time favorite ends of the world is neon Genesis Evangelion. Okay. Anybody, we're just going to talk about angels so much for the next couple of minutes. <laughs> well, all right. All right. All right. So if for, I've got, so for, if you've never seen this show, um, the first 23 episodes are big robot teen drama done really well. Like it's a really well executed, um, thing about like insecure teens but they also fight robots and each angel their goal is to break into the robot base and merge with this entity called lilith and if it does that it will become the dominant life form on earth and so the whole show you have no idea what they're talking about when they're talking about when they say that you're like what we're all going to become giant robots and then the other thing is at the very end the big revelation is humanity is the last being and so um i'm doing my best to keep this neutral because if you start this show has a ton of lore and it takes forever to explain it but here's the here's the point i'm just gonna say it a clone of the main character's mom but she's a teen girl merges with lilith which causes a shockwave to go across planet Earth so that the electric field that keeps human beings together collapses and they all turn into orange goo. All of this goo then merges into a giant anime girl body, which is then crucified by other robots. (laughs) And she lifts up into space and flies off into the stars. All of this occurs to the catchiest J-pop song you've ever heard. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like Stanley Kubrick wrote a movie for Nick Jr. No, that's the madness. So like right so like the whole show it's about like reunification and they keep saying in the show man we're going to create the new super being, we're going to lead humanity to the next stage of evolution. But you're constantly expecting them to like shoot that guy in the head and like sail off into their big robot sunset. And then, like, you you get the movie of this show, and it's like a two-hour movie. And the big ending I just described, that's like 30 minutes. It's long. I mean, it's David Lynch long. <laughs> and so all I w- I'll, what I'll say about Neon Genesis Evangelion is the fact that I told you the ending does not ruin anything. It, if anything, you'll enjoy how crazy the show is more because you're just like, he's not kidding. he's he's gonna spend 30 minutes showing all human beings on earth dissolve into one super anime girl (laughs) where we will all be one in a happy you know william blake one being and sail off into space I've started watching that show twice, and I really liked it, but I don't think I've ever quite made it to the end because it starts to get pretty out there by the end, at least in the original version of the show. I know they, they, the behind the scenes, they ran out of money, so it got even weirder because they had to do things on a sort of reduced budget. But recently, they sort of redid the series as a series of movies. I can't remember what they were called, but 
do you think that like what version should should be watched here like which is the most easily digestible small i mean Hmm. I, you know, this is people are this might piss people off, but I feel like I I like the original episodes because you can tell they're just more character and story driven. I don't know, man. I guess what I'm trying to say is like if you want to watch giant robots punch each other all day, like you know, there's there's a million animes that do that. Evangelion, like I was fine with them talking for thirty minutes, like that was cool. I mean, God, in this day and age, you almost appreciate it more. <laughs> True, true. Yeah, I, slow I, it down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It like, was, like, especially if you watched it when you were young, though, like the, it started to shift a little. And then it's like it was like riding on a bus where it suddenly lost one of the wheels and you're just sitting there going, whoa, wait, what, what, what? And it yeah. just like it's like, I love it. It's like the Power Rangers. This is a lot of fun. What the hell just happened? I think it, that's it, the experience. That a lot of people who got into anime like early when like there wasn't a lot of it over here in the like 90s and so you just had to just sit there at 12 and like watch akira and be like okay let's see if my brain can handle it this time <laughs> <laughs> look look i'll be the first version to admit like the show is not perfect and it's kind of a bait and switch man i hear you like you're like it'll, you get you get to like episode 11 or 12 and like there's a crucified you know blob creature and also, I mean, the lore is, you want to talk about some exposition, you just have some episodes where this guy like has to sit down and be like, okay, here it is for the fifth time. I mean, it's like playing a Persona game, right? Like, <laughs> they explain it to you eight times, and the whole time you're still like, there's no way you're going to actually have all human beings on Earth dissolve into a giant anime girl. Come on. <laughs> to, a J to a J-pop song. There's n that's outrageous. And then they're like, no, it's not, sir. <laughs> All right. Yeah, tough to beat, but we got other stuff on the list. Let's, yeah, we, uh, let's, let's keep rolling. Keep, come on, guys. Let's get past this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to Mr. Murray for his number four. All right. All right. So it's interesting that we're going to go here because my number four is science. Uh-oh. <laughs> Seems broad. <laughs> My number four is the, like the like uh the current like quantum physics uh model of it, the expanding universe. The CERN getting, the CERN yep, thing, yeah. Getting getting or like, you know, just like this is this is the it's the like end of the world scenario you're gonna get if you smoke weed and go to the planetarium at the Natural History Museum and let Neil deGrasse Dyson tell you about like what's happening in the stars for 45 minutes. And just so like my mine is I mean, for lack of a better term, I guess the realest one I think that I'm going to bring, um, you know, just like real straightforward, pretty nuts and bolts physics. Like the idea that eventually that the universe is expanding. And what's funny is coming right off of like, uh, of Kirk's the, like of the, that's what happens with the energy fields in Evangelion is that like, eventually the universe will get too big for its bridges. There'll be too much space in between all the particles inside, all the particles inside, all the particles, everything will break down and come slamming back together and then immediately big bang again. And we'll start over. Um, and that's sort of the opposite, right. Of the, of Azathoth for me, which is why I dropped it next in the list is the, like, I, I dig that, like, 
there's no mythology here. Nobody's making up a story. This isn't like there's no metaphors. It's just like scientists shooting particles at each other underneath Switzerland to being like, hey, you guys, I'm pretty sure that eventually this is just going to rubber band back in on itself, explode and start over. Oh, OK, cool. Well, prove it in a paper um, and and then have the popular one of us have have that guy, Bill, from the, you know, from kids television in the 90s. Have that guy tell everybody about it. They like it. <laughs> I um, do feel a little defensive about Bill Nye. So just careful. Watch your don't, I, don't I rule? <laughs> he is just a science guy, though, and not a scientist. He's just like uh, he's just like a, a an intelligent entertainer actor guy who, like, you know, has read a bunch of stuff and listened to a bunch of smart people at this point and is trying to help people. Which is understand. more than can be said for most people on television. Hell so yeah, I think, dude. Yeah. No, I've nothing bad. I've, I've <laughs> I, his new book was good. I'm absolutely all on board for Bill and I trying to save the world. But like, that's the thing about Neil deGrasse. I mean, like, I don't think the site, the scientific community is not lousy with charismatic uh, human beings, you know, right. no, it's fair. Um, yeah, it's that guy's got an 18 in charisma. Easy. You yeah. just gotta, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta take them what you can get. And if the int score is high enough, then we'll, we'll work with it. And like, that's yeah. like the, the science had to just like, like the physicist community had to be like, yo, we got a cool black guy that played college football, but he's the face, <laughs> man. This is it. Let's let him talk to people. This is the Obama physicist. This is amazing. <laughs> And, uh, okay, so so how long do we have here? Like, how how uh, should I be worried? Should I be? I think yeah. we're all gonna make it. Uh, okay. there are lots of things that can end you and me. The oceans are gonna rise above our fucking heads <laughs> way before the universe just snaps back in on itself. Um, yeah, it's billions and billions and billions of years. Uh, I guess so then your, the question your, is: your gluons are your muons and uh, quarks are all pretty stable still. You're good. <laughs> Ah, Deep Space Nine. Now we're talking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess then uh, here's a, another, I suppose, existential question: <laughs> Is the uh, is is the the Earth dying enough for it to be considered an apocalypse, or does it have to be the whole well universe? I've got some Earth. This is, Earth the, this, is the, this is another one, man. You're like you're getting outside of another apocalypse. I'm not. I'm not. I'm yeah. not bringing the one that we're all living through to the <laughs> table. I'm. This is me being like, why? Well, when I'm interested in, and as we we move to my next one, um, which is we'll get to, but like I like the idea that uh, there there just are a whole bunch of people looking at. Uh, how matter is behaving in a like really large, intense way with like not worried about the existential consequences of any of it. And just being like, look, we're, we're, we're flinging particles at it, at each other and looking at them and just trying with, without commenting on any of the, like how this impacts like humanity's uh, interaction with like, consciousness and divinity and our purpose at all like they're just like this is what's happening this is what we see happening eventually snap boom boom again here we go let's see let's see how this one and like who knows how many iterations we're on and then the philosopher and me gets excited about that oh so you mean you mean like one the question how many times has the universe come together and exploded out and come <laughs> together and then two 
even if human beings built a galactic spacefaring empire or like became cues or whatever, yeah. the universe is still going to collapse and it's yep. all going to, no matter what, the table's getting wiped. Yep. It's pr- pretty final. Yeah. It sort of etch sketches itself every time and like it goes back. And like, you know, but that's, again, this is the current f- physics theory. Um, one of One of several. Um, but I just think that's cool that like to look in an apocalypse, most apocalyptic scenarios are rife with metaphor. Um, and I think it's cool to like be just recognize that like there are people looking at the end of everything uh, without worrying about the, you know, mythological consequences of it. Just like it doesn't have to just mean like anything. They look at, yeah, just like they're looking at how like plants move water through their cells. You know, it's cool. It's comforting to me in a way. There are people that are just contemplating the end without like contemplating it. I'm just, I'm just impressed. That's number four. That one's that's the, you know, it's all going downhill, man. Mine are much more localized. I stick to, I stick to earth for the most part. My one and my, my next one's pretty cosmic and big. And then one and two are pretty, pretty humans being dum-dums. So yeah. Yeah. It is. It's always hard to avoid preferring the local flavor. Let's be fair. (laughs) I, I, you know what? Not a microbrew guy. I, I, I like a, I like a Corona with a lime in it. You know, what yeah. I mean? like a big, big, big picture. I mean, I mean, cup. I want the apocalypse that's going to kill me, Alex. Not, not just everybody. You don't know when I'm going to die. You don't, you don't know when this consciousness, how far I'm going to make it. Um, oh, man. Wow. <laughs> well, mine is mine. Uh, the uh, my number four is by sci-fi author Olaf Stapledon in his 1920s classic Last and First Men. This is a book that's about um, the five million year history of the human species, starting at our era. Like for the first like 50 pages, it's a bunch of weird like apocalyptic war stuff. But once he gets past World War II. Because remember, he's like writing in 1920, so he doesn't know what's coming. Once he gets past that awkward bit and we've all blown ourselves up with nukes um, and he wipes the planet, then the series gets really interesting. But my apocalypse is what happens to this first species of men. He breaks up the five million years into each time the human species has a serious genetic change. So the species that's off gets off planet Earth is like the fifth variation of the species. It's like Homo mantis or something. I don't remember it. Um, hmm. And the Earth is dying and they have to flee the planet because um, something happened. I can't remember. And they terraform another planet. As they're terraforming it, they realize they're killing the wildlife and the species on the planet. And they all kind of look at each other and are like, we don't have a choice. Then they put as many humans as they can on the colony ships. They go to the second planet and they discover that much like how human beings can't actually survive in zero G that long, they uh, they can't just jump to another planet. Olaf Stapleton was one of the first writers to invent um, the concept of biological determinism. He didn't invent huh. it, but he employed it in sci-fi. When, in a, when did he write this? 1920s. Oh, damn. Yeah. Hmm. And where he's, he's specifically saying, you as a species have evolved for thousands of years to live on this planet. You cannot just jump to another planet 
it's going to have different gravity. It's going to be different sunlight, different night and day cycles. It's like, and so basically all the colonists start to go insane and die. And the survivors genet create the next genetic species of man that's designed to live on this planet. And basically their children have to carry on the species, but the human beings who are attuned to earth die out. I really liked that both as like, you don't see many authors, well, it's getting popular with the expanse, right? Like starting to talk about the hardships of like, it isn't going to be like Star Trek, man. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's going to be rough. Um, but I mean, that's especially for the 1920s, you don't get a lot of like, just even that cosmically far out people. It was, I mean, sci-fi in those early days was super weird because they thought all the, one, they thought a lot of the more planets in the solar system were habitable. Like people thought you could just go to Venus or Mars and walk around. A lot of people (laughs) didn't, because you didn't really know it was there. So you could speculate still. But like a lot of people, I remember C.S. Lewis in his sci-fi books. They're so weird out of the silent planet. Yeah, but he they thinks just go that, to Mars and like there's like dinosaur people walking around on Mars. Yeah, no, he thinks that like human beings should only live on Earth. He thinks it's satanic and against God's will to like live on Mars. And you're yeah, like, it doesn't go well for them. It's you're just like I, I don't know, man. I hadn't put that much thought into it, CS. But <laughs> <laughs> certainly not from that perspective. You know. Anyways, that's my number four. I like. I've always I like that one. Is kind of um. It's similar to Alex's theme of like. It, 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 you know, you're not just going to like hop on a rocket ship, even if there was another world that it could easily work on. Like, I, I don't know it, that, that, and that's hard because eventually like the last people have to like make the next generation for the new world. There's a bit of my favorite, like, uh, uh, you meet your destiny on the road you take to avoid it. Uh, always there. Like there's, I mean, or to, to go back to the language that yeah, apparently you, you wanted me to speak, it's a bit of Ragnarok to it. Right. Mm-hmm. In a, like, uh, in that, like, yeah. Oh, we're saving ourselves. Everything's fine. It's like, no, you ended the human race by like trying to save yourself. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. is it, is, is the book, uh, is it, I mean, how is it written? Is it, it, it sort of sounds like it's, it's almost like an encyclopedia entry or is there a, a sort of a narrative to it? Oh, there's no, that and his other book, Star Maker, which is just the history of the universe that it ends exactly as, well, his theory about the end of the universe was that eventually all energy would be consumed and it would just, everything would die. But um, huh. Huh. it's it just turns out. Yeah, yeah, just the lights go out. And so he it's a it's like a galactic history book. Um there's nothing quite like it. Like remember this dude's writing back in the 1920s so there there are the genre is not defined. He's doing whatever he wants. He's very good at science and botany, so there's a lot of 1920s science. I don't I don't want to say that he had like you know, he wasn't Nostradamus. He couldn't predict the future, but it's just really interesting. And a lot of the sci-fi concepts he coined got ripped off by a lot of people. Um, let's if we, we can bring it back to H.P. Lovecraft. Even he was obsessed with this book. He stole a few a few ideas from it. But um, 
What all did Stapleton invent? Oh, uh, a ton of stuff. Um, the idea of like sleeper robots in a population. There's this one species of man that genetically creates giant brain people. <laughs> and the subserv and the brain people then create a subservient class of humans. And to police the subservient class, they have all these robots that look just like people. It's like it's the Terminator, right? Um Yeah. Or a Blade Runner thing, yeah. So I would just think of it as, yeah, a history book where this guy like sketches out crazy shit, but it kind of stays engaging while also just being super depressing because it's constantly, you know, and then a million years go by and this species dies out because of X, Y, and Z, or they consumed all the resources on this continent. So it stopped working out. Like he's also very dark. I don't know, man. It's a weird one, but that's one I always recommend to people. That's intense, but it does sound super cool. And <laughs> in a way, kind of hopeful because things keep continuing. Well, you know, you know where I got the tip to read it. Uh, I'll pass along the origin. It was in the video game Deus Ex. <laughs> I love that game. Yeah. Oh, if you're in the bar in Hong Kong, if you talk to one of the bartenders, this is literally why I read it was because this NPC is Deus Ex borrows a ton from Olaf Stapledon and um, the the bartender starts ranting to you about like the next evolution of human beings and like the, the new species of man. And, you know, the protagonist is like, what are you talking about? Uh, and uh, he'll just go in this Olaf Stapledon rant. And I was like, if someone was weird enough to put this in a video game, <laughs> I'm, I'm reading it. I'm, and I, I've, it paid off, man. I read both the guys books. They were wild. I respect it. Okay, well, let's jump back. We're, we're you know, we oh, got to get through all of these apocalypse. It gets weirder and weirder. Well, I think this one would be pretty short because, like, for me, eventually, I I, I am realizing now, too, that I went, like, real big with my, <laughs> when my five, four, and three are, like, these are, like, on cosmic scope. And then I, I like, zeroed in on, uh, on, on ding dong, uh, human idiot monkeys with guns uh la later um but uh my second one because i was i was thinking about like the expanding universe and then i i am not an expert on the hindu religion but <laughs> that's a good disclaimer to put out there i feel but, like uh, not enough people say that but like the the cycles that essentially end like the the behavior of the god shiva i think is is like number three for me um and again it's this like i think this one can be pretty short because it's the idea of the same cyclical thing that i was sort of talking about like uh hinduism is built there's these there's ages and they're very very long um, they're thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and they have to do with with evolutions of man as well, which is is interesting. Um, coming off of Kirk talking about these different like humanity evolving into next phases, is that like we're on phase, we're back at a phase one now, uh, and then we've got to like evolve as a like race into phase two, into phase three, into phase four, and that has to do with like rama coming back and all sorts of mythological things going down that i like don't have the lore down but uh but i like the idea that at the center of the all uh, of all of that there's uh shiva the creator destroyer god who um is like existent as an ascetic presence who like 
he's he's very zen uh and uh and like creates and destroys in equal measure and like dances his their dance um and uh like without wrath or mistake he captivates consolidates and then destroys and that's those that was a sentence that i did not write um uh but yeah that's 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 my third one so it's basically the thing that the physicists are talking about but wrapped in tons and tons of metaphor that like you know we have enough time there's lots and lots and lots of time left in like the universe so we should use that time to like evolve as much as we can as much as we can and to also know that we can't evolve there's only so much we can evolve so far we can evolve and then you know the universe will etch a sketch itself um you know shiva will burn everything down which is you know i guess how 4000 years ago you one might describe the 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 energy fields in electrons you know giving up and uh and collapsing on themselves and um and then he'll you know he'll he'll look at it and start dancing again and things will start back up and we'll see how far we get that time um, so sort of an eerie parallel between the ones you've mentioned, really. I mean, like, well, in yeah. this case, wrapped in mythology, but in the end, kind of means the same thing. Right. Uh, and like, I, I'm very, you know, uh, this, these are the things that interest me. If you listen to any of uh, my other podcasts, you can hear me. Boy, if you want to hear me scream about chaos magic, we just watched WandaVision on one of my podcasts. <laughs> um and then I, I, uh, it's called Mike contextualizes the universe. I hadn't watched all the Marvel movies and my buddy was like, let's, let's watch them. And he's very much like read the comics, likes the movies and every single episode, I just like start screaming about Joseph Campbell and <laughs> hero mythoses and like, uh, you know, created creators and like, you know, especially like the weird ones, like Thor to the dark world that everybody hated. I was like, yes, let's go back to the beginning of time and talk about the <laughs> transdimensional machine elves that you can only talk to if you smoke all the DMT. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's sort of my like three for me is the same idea of this like big cyclical, like it's like half Azathoth, but like if as if that like, if that thing was also the the eventual the inevitable destroyer was also the joyful creator um really intrigues me i like that a lot um that the the god in charge of everything is not indulging he's just sort of meditating and maintaining and then watching and being like ah, that was enough of that and then just you know, at, like flipping his etch a sketch over and uh and starting over again I think it's it's one of the interesting contrasts or I mean, and, and this is coming mostly from a place of ignorance, but my very basic understanding is like Western religions and mythologies tend to see the end times and like destruction as inherently bad and evil, whereas Eastern religions and mythologies tend to view it as more of a cycle. And it's like, cyclical. And like yeah. we can go back to C.S. Lewis again as well. Right. Like his his weird. We could have I could have talked about the last battle, I suppose. Um, the end of Narnia and then our world as well at the same time. Um, but yeah, I, I think that Western Western religions for sure. Um, I, some of them are Gnosticism as well as that gets weirder. And, you know, if you get into left hand path magic, uh, things get funky and psychedelic. Um, but like the Abrahamic religions for sure, like the end is is basically the end of like this plane and then you're going to pick a side and you're going to go to like 
the next land, which was the goal all along. And that like being good and doing things is, is there's a transactional element to it. And I, I like the Eastern idea of like, you know, it's just the, like we are the in inhale and exhale of a being that is so big. We can't ever possibly comprehend it. So like, you know, just try and be chill. Man, <laughs> wow. Not everyone would find that as a chill thing, but I, I get what you're saying. I promise my next two are way smaller. And <laughs> <laughs> mine no is mine is more of like mine is more of like a fantasy. Oh, so let's say let's say like someone came in front of you and was like, all right, there has to be a natural disaster that wipes out the planet. And you're like, all right, I don't want to do a meteor. I don't want to do um <laughs> You know, my choice for the rock's going to save everybody. Yeah. The world's the world's a tsunami just covers. No, no, no. Let's let this is my this is how I the my marsh state puff marshmallow man. Choose your end. Right. Ranger Bob is at Yellowstone and it's been a hot day (laughs) and this busload of tourists comes up and this old lady with a camera is stomping down the deck towards the geyser. She's been in that bus for 36 hours and she's here to feed the chipmunks and step on the soil. She gives the chipmunks some pretzels. She gets her foot out on the ground and the ranger's like, ma'am, you can't, you can't walk out there. It's dangerous. Don't tell me what to do, sonny. And Rob's like, ranger Bob's like, ma'am, come on. And as she takes another step, there's this rumbling. And you start to see some people who are trying to get their photo with a buffalo look up. <laughs> you see some people who stop their car in the middle of the damn road to take a picture of like, it's just a bird, man. It's just a big bird. Don't worry about it. You'll see another bird. You see, you know, a couple of bears who are digging through some garbage, stop what they're doing and look around. And, uh, you know, the woman's like, what is that? And then Yellowstone blows up. <laughs> <laughs> the whole continent just. <laughs> and it starts with Ranger Bob and some well-fed chipmunks. That's my that's my like choose your end is it's like, I hope Yellowstone blows up and <laughs> the resulting, you know, volcanic explosion incinerates the atmosphere. It's quick. Um You'll get one last look around, and then then it's it's done. You know it's due, right? Oh, yeah. It's like (laughs) 200,000 years late, and it's like 600,000-year cycle. Like, it could pop at any moment, man. Oh, oh yeah, dude. YOLO, my friends. (laughs) We might not have a hot planet issue soon. That's all I (laughs) It might take a strong turn. But uh, that's my pick. That's my uh, choose your doom. Now, I notice in your setup, there's a a certain cast of characters. <laughs> in, in a way, I guess I'm just trying to inquire, like, does your choice, is it a little bit revenge fueled in a way? Is there some of that in there? <laughs> Man, just Jeffrey Chaucer style, like piling all of your enemies right on top of the caldera. <laughs> A little bit. I, I mean, I old ladies have been kicking my ass in courtrooms since I started. Like they, they got their pay for me, and it's always. Um, I, I mean, I didn't mean it to be that vindictive a way. I tried to give her, um, you know, a, an explanation for her bad mood, <laughs> so she's not just like that all the time. Right. 
But uh, no, I don't know, man. I to me, it was like I want someone to. I was like, I want like everyone to be doing the rudest thing possible in a national park, whether it's like feeding creatures, you know, everything that pisses you off. Some 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 kid is like throwing trash on the ground. A guy's like pissing in the river. Like every <laughs> every annoying thing possible, just so it's like now. <laughs> I've had it. <laughs> like Yellowstone itself was waiting to be. It's just like that's it. The disrespect. Yeah, so, yeah. The Yellowstone finally revolts. <laughs> so if slash when this volcano does erupt, it, it could it be the end of the Earth? Is that what you're saying? Mm, I mean, do y'all not know about the Yellowstone caldera? I, I look. We're Canadian. Give us a break here. This is a whole <laughs> other country. <laughs> I mean. That's fair. I mean, I'm not talking about do y'all not know about it in a like Teddy Roosevelt, the nation's best idea sort of way. It's that like, how dare you, sir? Yeah. (laughs) Yellowstone Park is like all them geysers and whatnot that we're so very proud of. And that like all them big big fat cheeseburger swollen ding dongs that Kirk was just talking about go to look at and be like, oh, damn, look at that water. He's going shooting up ass on boy. Old faithful. How about that? That's my one of my 40. Uh, southern accent. Jimmy's uh, Howard Halls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that. That right there was uh, Whiskey Bill's cousin Rose. Just made a guest appearance on this this podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, all that is just a bunch of like intense, like uh, I want to say geometric, but that's not the word. Geothermal. But, thank you. Yeah. Geothermal pressure and energy and stuff, and it's just like and like there's geologists that have been looking at it and they're like, it pops off hard. Like it is a, I think, I, what, do you know how many miles long it is Kirk? So what? Your head? So, I mean, I, I, like a brief explanation is better. Like I'll put it this way. If it blows up, a lot of earth is on top of the explosion. Does that make sense? And so yeah, right. you're talking about like, it's like 40 miles, 40, 40 miles. miles. Era, like there's a hole blows up in the, in the, earth's crust the closest molten ash and hate there's a the we actually i mean human beings had a mini ice age in like the year 600 because a similar scale event of like a gigantic volcano exploded and put so much dust into the atmosphere that um the atmosphere was like pink and orange and people thought the world was ending but more importantly it caused um, severe blizzards and droughts or like rainstorms and stuff. So like tons of people died because of all this crop failure. Um, A lot of why the Vikings uh, took it up a notch was they, (laughs) the theory, the theory is that they were frozen out of all of these islands that they lived on and took to raiding to feed themselves. But it would be intense, uh, you know, I, it could be as big as I was describing, but what I described uh, is the more optimistic scenario. Does that make sense? Like it's somewhere between those two. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely like up here. We're definitely aware it's a volcano. We were just kind of hoping it was mostly your problem. Yeah. You know, no. Like, yeah. Uh, no. It's, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is not. <laughs> like, I wouldn't want to be in the U.S. if that thing popped up. I mean, I'd rather be in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it seems like the difference, the points might be moot. I mean, there's <laughs> some parts of Canada that are pretty close to, relatively close to Yellowstone, I guess. But yeah, you know. there's that too. For that matter, there are parts of Canada that are already pretty cold. So, <laughs> yeah, if you ever play- nor there, almost Have like we're ever- all citizens of this planet, and the borders are fucking <laughs> stupid and don't mean yeah. anything. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way: Have you ever played Frostpunk? <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. I got you. <laughs> okay. Well, should we should we head back to uh, Alex for number two? Yeah. Let's zoom it all the way down in. I'm so is this yours, was uh, my, is my next Jellystone. Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My yeah, my next one is. <laughs> imagine this. Let me set the scene. <laughs> hey, boo boo. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the whole goddamn world doesn't explode. Oh, yo. You ever just want to see it all burn, boo-boo? You're always so dark. Come on, Yogi. It's just a goddamn bird. You'll see another one. I don't know, boo-boo. I got to put it on my Instagram. Um, Yeah. uh, Mine is, uh, I think my my next two are like global doomsday scenarios. And uh, number two for me is the, the nuclear apocalypse, especially like specifically laid out in uh, Dr. Strange love or how I learned to, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Um, We've all seen this movie, right? I hope it's been a Um, while. God, man, it'd been a while for me too. And I knew I wanted to do it because like, this is especially like, you know, talking about things being relevant, like, you know, just a bunch of, in cowboys um who like you know get get ridiculous and like uh you know it's the the essential plot of the movie is that like somebody is like mad uh is like is like like mad at their wife or something somebody's just having a bad day and like tells a nuclear squad a, a like one of his like bomber wings to go drop bombs on russia and uh slim pickens in whew, just an incredible performance um, is the guy in the plane that like flies to drop bomb and uh, his communications go out. So he's off the radio. So he's just like on a bomber run. And most of the movie takes place right in the war room um, in the United States where Peter Sellers plays uh, a a lot of uh, a whole lot of different characters. Uh, Dr. Strangelove among them. And then George C. Scott also delivers some incredible stuff, but it's basically, you know, it's, it's us making fun of, uh, I went back and watched a bunch of good scenes from it, but not the whole movie uh, in preparation for this show. And man, the stuff like, God, they, there's a whole scene where they start talking about uh, how there can't be a doomsday gap. Like, you know, (laughs) this is a whole thing was an arms race and like, and, uh, uh, it's suggested by Dr. Strangelove that we can put everybody in tunnels, right? And then there's a doomsday scenario. George C. Scott's like, Mr. President, we got to get on this right now. There can't possibly be a doomsday gap. And then the whole world explodes because Slim Pickens <laughs> Slim Pickens jumps up and down on an atom bomb and rides it to his death uh, gleefully, thinking that he's being patriotic and helping. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, it's that. It's that, like, you know, a whole bunch of people, the whole... Ugh, the government death by irreverence. Well, death by irreverence, but also like I mean, this is this is the this is the the hell we're all waiting to get unleashed right now, right? It's like you know the powers that be rile up some fucking cowboy who's holding on to a bunch of nuclear bombs, and then like they they get him all fired up, and then they can't stop him, and he's painted his face red and white and blue, and he's wearing buffalo horns, and he's running around, and he's just you know some dickhead gave him new codes and like then you tell him to stop and he's like nah screw you you can't stop me i'm i am i'm a patriot um yeah and then uh blows blows us all to hell <laughs> it's gonna that sentiment never dies nope <laughs> nope that movie is 50 years old now awesome and 
and still perfectly applicable. Oh man. I, like I was, I was, I watched like 30 minutes worth of clips and I was like, this movie could have come out last week. Like Jesus, you can't fight in here. This is the war this room. This is the war room. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> or the thing where, where they're like, listen, man, does he have a chance? And George C. Scott gets all riled up and he's like, oh yeah, man. And one of these good pilots goes in there all low and he's scaring the chickens in the barnyard. And it's a beautiful sight to see. And they're like, yeah, but like, can we take him down? He's like, nah, you can't take. Oh, uh oh, <laughs> <Like>, that, like, <laughs> that like Tex Avery cartoon moment of like, oh, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. There's that beautiful moment of like them, like looking at the big giant board and being like, this is the best, the big board. Yeah, man. <laughs> It's a great one. USA. USA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of amazing how close uh, like you read these stories of how close we've come in the past to oh. these nuclear holocausts. And it's just been, you know, one press of a button away from from the end. But uh, we, have, we've survived so far. Chicken with it, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just was like, nah, you're bluffing. What, dude? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, let's head back on over to uh, Kirk. What's your number two? Number two is a modern doomsday scenario. I'm pulling this one from William Gibson's The Peripheral. Mm. I liked this one because he called it the jackpot. And what I liked about it is that he was basically saying it's not going to be one event. It's going to be a series of events. And what he's talking about is... In the sci-fi world, um, like three or four different plagues broke out at the same time. At the same, also global warming's happening. Some mega storms like hit. Wow, this is this is really starting to feel a little too relevant. No, yeah, no, I, I feel like I'm on Twitter right now. <laughs> yeah, and what basically he says is like basically five or six mini apocalypses, right? Like they're not events that would have by themselves take out the government, but it's like five or six in a row um, basically caused societal collapse for like 20 years. And the book is starting up right as civilization is kind of like, you know, countries are kind of talking to each other again and there's not just like this constant terror going on. And um, I, I thought it was interesting. It was an interesting dialogue because now it seems very, very real, but at the time it came out, it just sort of surprised me. Like I was like, Oh, that's totally how it would be. I mean, that's <laughs> what the dark ages were, right? Like it wasn't, it was Rome collapsing and you have this severe climate, this mini ice age and you have um, the Mongol hordes murdering lots of people. It was it? Were they going on then? Feudalism, also, man. There was another mini ice age, and then a big old plague, and then some oh, wars. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. It's like with the Black Plague, where they're like, yeah, everybody died. There's, there's just like a couple years where the, the records, church did a terrible job. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a real thin paperwork. So I liked that. Um, that's a good book. The sequels, I've not heard good things, but um, the first book is a really interesting, like oh, you know, like this like idea of like a cascade failure. That is seems much more likely, I suppose, and in a way that bothers me more. Oh <laughs> yeah, like, so that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but perhaps that's how Shiva is dancing his dance, you know? Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
All right, swapping them back. Alex, what do you got for number two? Uh, number, what's your number one? Number one, man. This is it. All down to and it. You know, it's it may actually it's actually perfect that you said that because my favorite doomsday like piece of dooms like doomsday story is Cat's Cradle uh, by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, if uh, if y'all aren't familiar, it's the one that Ice Nine comes from. If you'd know what Ice Nine is, well, the story essentially is this: the it's written by uh, a guy who is interviewing um, a bunch of scientists who made the nuclear bomb, and he ends up going and interviewing one of these scientists, the uh, uh, one of the scientists, his kids, and it turns out that this guy was uh, making, uh, spent. Uh, he was doing cat making a cat's cradle when the bomb went off. Like that's where the title of the book comes from is that like the guy who helped invent it. It's a fake scientist was just like playing the string game cat's cradle, right? With his hands, um, like just doing the most mundane thing Vonnegut could think of while like the bomb was actually dropping on Hiroshima. He was just like minding his own business because the whole thing to him had no, there were no consequences. And this is going to go back to my like number four too, of like people just like, scientists engaging in chemistry and physics for chemistry and physics sake without thinking about the ramifications um, of what they're about. And uh, he, he makes a chemical called ice nine. And basically what ice nine does is if it comes in contact with liquid water, it immediately freezes it and freezes immediately like that. All liquid water touching that liquid water. Um, Pretty dangerous thing to have around. And uh, through a, a series of events, um, <laughs> the uh, the narrator of the book ends up on a plane to a f- fake Caribbean island uh, with one of the scientist's sons uh, and gets and ends up falling in love with the like princess of the island and getting offered the leadership of the island by the president of the island who's dying of cancer and wants to die and wants to leave it to this guy. Um, the world ends uh, when the the dictator of the island um, uh, like cedes power to the narrator and then goes in his room and eats some ice nine that the the uh, the scientist's son had brought to him. So he's some ice nine. So he's turned into like a but he just dies. He turns into a big thing. And then uh, there's there's a religious riot in in the city that uh, results in the palace being destroyed and the body of the former president falling out into the ocean. The end. Ice nine. We ice the world. Everything's over. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff with the religious riot. Uh, the religious riot happens because the uh, the state is anti this religion, but actually they're pro that religion. But they want everybody to practice that religion, so they have to pretend to be anti-religion so that people will engage in the religion in secret because they think that they're being hip and cool and intense. Um, and it's actually – it's the religion is called Bokanonism, and it's this weird uh, approximation of like Zen ideas and, um, and nihilism. Uh, but I, I – it's – it's a gr- it's a great read. Uh, anybody who's listening should read it. It's also Vonnegut, so it's funny as hell. Um, and uh, the ideas of Bokanon are very cool. It's all about it's on, and the whole book is all about how we're all super duper intricate, intricately connected, and that like you know it's going to be 
it's not 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 that it's not going to be like Star Trek and not that it's not going to be like Azathoth or this epic weird big thing. It's just going to be a bunch of weird shit that happens because people are dabbling left and right. There's a whole bunch of people dabbling in things without considering the massive consequences of what they're doing. Every every person's actions have these massive far reaching rippling consequences. And, you know. it's hard to keep track of all of them. And eventually, eventually just as, just as if you put a bunch of monkeys with typewriters in a room, eventually you'll get Shakespeare. Eventually people running around doing stuff, mucking around with electrons and ice and bombs and stuff. (laughs) We're just going to kill everybody. (laughs) Um, You know, we'll get there. Um, So yeah, that's, that's my last one. And I, Oh man, I I adore it. It it is, uh, it is, it is gleeful. Uh, the The end of it is essentially uh, you realize that you're 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 reading. Somebody runs. He runs into the religious re- leader and goes, "Man, what should I do?" And the guy goes, "I don't know. If I if I cared, I would walk to the top of the highest mountain and I would write a book about man's folly, and then I would kill myself." And you realize that that's what you're reading. Um, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Have you not? Oh, Kirk. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've you, you read it in afternoon it, yeah. and like, and I, I think I read it a while ago and then I just was like, I was, I wanted to do it for this one. And I said, I read it in the afternoon. It's like 120 pages. It's, it's a good time. No, I'll uh-huh. crank it up sometime. I love a good Vonnegut one. I haven't, uh, I haven't done cat's cradle, but, um, right, yeah, he's, he has, as everything else we've said is more relevant than ever. Um, <laughs> annoyingly. Well, my number one is, video games i've um i've been replaying the dark souls trilogy and <laughs> i've really enjoyed their take on the entropic decay of the universe this gets into i think alex's number four and three a fair bit in that like uh for, for that if you're unfamiliar with dark souls um this god gwendolyn uh found this soul and he used it to create the world of uh, fire and light. And after like centuries, he realized that the fire was starting to decay. And so he had to like collect energy to keep the fire going. And he basically lit himself on fire. What's really neat about this cycle is the first game is just the question of like, do you want to light the fire again or not? So you like go around and you gather up all the energy in this world. And look, man, Dark Souls lore is as crazy as Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, I'm not going to tr- cover the whole thing. This is just my I kind of. We've tried to explain 10 entire universes. In this- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so with including the one that we live in, it's, <laughs> All right, you know, fair enough. So, like, there's there's a ton of, like, subplots about, like, eternal beings that were there before the fire was lit that are now, like, trapped in this new world of gods. There's this um, men and what role do they play with these super beings. Um, and so the game does a bunch of cool stuff. There's also, like, this undead curse that causes people to slowly go insane. And the curse happens whenever the the universe is starting to collapse, like the entropic decay is beginning. And so in the first game, you go kill a bunch of the original gods and relight the universe. And at the end of the game, one of the big decisions, the only decision you can make is, do you want to let the fire go out and a dark age begin? Or do you want to like carry on the cycle? Neat. 
What's cool <laughs> about this trilogy is they keep the conversation changing. So game two is this whole new world where this king tries to beat the cycle. He doesn't want to have to light himself on fire and cause like he's the most powerful being in this world. So he, it kind of falls to him to be ignited into the new sun. Right. And so he tries to get out of it and it just causes a disaster. This like evil demon gets caught up with him. And um, the whole first section of the second game is this fight between light and dark. And it's kind of traditional, but in the entropic setting. And then at the very end of this game, the big plot twist is you find out it doesn't fucking matter. Like both, both ages, like the world's been recycling. Like Alex, you were saying with black holes, Sure, yeah. it's happened. It's been going, this has been going on for centuries and you go to like past worlds and some of them are like on fire from like the new reawakening. Some of them, they chose darkness and the world is just like a, this dungeon cave. <laughs> and so that game is all about kind of the meaninglessness of the cycle and that kind of thing. The third game is about all the energy's gone. Everything in the world wants to die. It's, it's kind of a, it's a really depressing game. Dark Souls, I didn't, Dark Souls 3, like, I have, I kind of complain about that one the most. I think I'm one of the weirder fans, but um, I liked Dark Souls 2. I, I just did the, I'm weird like that. But what I loved about Dark Souls 3 is the bosses in that one don't want to do it anymore. Like, they're like, I don't, I want to just let this cycle die. And you have to go and harvest them. And then there are all these different decisions you make at the end, but, um, that's just a world that's ending. And I, I liked that. I liked that the third game, everything is covered in ash. Everything's dead. And it just, uh, that eventually the gas runs out and the game is kind of, do you want to just keep blithely going on? Do you want to usher in the age of darkness and finally let this go? And, um, <laughs> I don't know. I It's just fascinating. And it's even, the game is even kind of aggressively angry towards people, the ones abstaining from it, right? Like, it's almost saying that, like, don't you, the ones, because book three, the ga third game is all about people running from this cycle. Like, book two is like people fighting over it. Book or game three is like, I don't want to do this anymore. And it's like, nah, you can't run from this. Yeah, make a choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's time to you know, it's time to check a box. Shit or get off the apocalypse. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like that. It's like but buddy, like you gotta go press the button. You can't just sit in your tower. So I that's my take. Um they're very abstract games, so I know that there's like a whole complex lore, but like that's the that's what I enjoy when I'm uh getting beat up in them. <laughs> yeah, dying but over. They have a cool yeah, for sure. Yeah, Dark Souls I never did, but I got really into Bloodborne for a while, Oof. which I think is more of a... That's the best one. I mean, that... Yeah. I tell people, I'm like, Dark Souls are weird. Like, the second one, the controls are really... Take a long time to get used to. It's a strange series, but Bloodborne is... Mwah, chef's kiss good. Mm -hmm. But again, hyper weird in the lore. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, look, I that was a big inspiration, man. Bloodborne was... um. Like right when I read that Victor Lavelle story was when uh, I was also playing Bud Bloodborne, and I was like, "This is awesome!" 
Like <laughs> I, I dig this setting. Right. Well, the sad thing about uh, talking about the slow decay and the end of the world is it makes it difficult to segue. <laughs> but uh, that's all, folks. <laughs> yeah, a big, a big explosion sound. Nobody gets to plug shit. Don't follow anybody on Twitter. I mean, yeah, like those are both pretty awesome lists, and we got a ton of recommendations. But yeah, let's let's circle back down to you guys. Sure. Like, I mean, but between Cthulhu, the Deep South, and just, I mean, everything that you've written, everything you've put together, like, you guys have extremely well-educated and extremely interesting views on this. Thank you and for people not listening annoying to this. and pretentious. <laughs> this very kind of you. No, no. In, in terms of pretentious, we're, we're peas in a pod. I get Hell that yeah. <laughs> a lot. Uh, but yeah, the folks listening to this are going to want more of that. And where can they go to find it? You to let us know where well, where can they go to find your stuff. You can follow me at r alex murray on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, uh, yeah, that's all of them, and um, that I care about. And um, so you know, if you want updates on uh, these Hallowed Halls or Cthulhu in the Deep South, that's those are great places to follow me. I usually do most of the screaming about them um also that show and the show my contextualizes the universe i also have a podcast where i listen to to kids bop records and re-record music and talk about slow descents into madness um that's a good one it's called child's play but all these all these shows can be found on the missing sock podcast network of which kirk and i are members uh missing sock network.com or uh at missing sock network on all the social medias and you can get you know Lots of lots of fun content. There's a uh, you know a whole lot of happy stuff too. We're comedians, but also <laughs> yeah, I yeah yeah I, I forget that um it's like man I hope this episode is like funny. There's, there's some dark rants. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. look. I, I had a great time. That's the important thing: is the yeah, friends yeah. along the way to the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, the it, real it, apocalypse it, is the friends we made along the way. <laughs> there you it, go. It's the apocalypse. It can be whatever you want because it's not going to matter real soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and no one will ever know. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank, Thank you. you. This, this um, was actually weirdly a lot of fun, as you could tell by my picks. Talking about them chills me out. Kirk, did you want to drop anything? Um, like I know the like Cthulhu in the Deep South. It's on podcasts, so you can find it. You know your podcatcher of choice. Um, those books are also available on e-readers, Kindles, Kobo's, that sort of thing. Oh yeah. Um, Hallowed Halls. You said is soon, and that's also coming out in print. Is that right? It's, so the book's been out for a year. Kind of what motivated the podcast was right when I published the book, uh, COVID broke out. So there was like no book tour, no promos, and like none of the stores are open. So I was like, this is great. Uh, and so that, that was when I got in touch with Alex and I was like, hey, man, you want to record my giant book with me? And, um, you know, we worked out a deal for it and... Uh, that, I'm really proud of the show, but you can buy the book now. Um, I, I have a website, kirkbattle.com, and you can also just type my name into Amazon, and that'll get it all the materials for like the books, the e-readers, Space Lawyers on there, um, the, that weird vampire detective crap I wrote. Uh, <laughs> same shade you, you cast such a negative light on. No, 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 no. I, I like that series, but it's like... I don't know. The first book, um, I, I it was like one of the very first books I ever wrote, and you can tell. But book two is good. Uh, I like book book two is a popper. Um, that it's all about like vampire familiars, and uh, 
he has to solve this murder mystery when one of the vamp familiars is killed. But the, it's it's awesome, man. That's a fun one. All right. Thank you. Uh, while we're giving out thanks, uh, we also want to thank Oliver Wickham, uh, the musician behind the Geek Top 5 Season 5 theme song. Uh, be sure to check out his stuff on Spotify. Uh, he's a music, music producer. He's got all kinds of cool stuff on there. And, of course, want to say thank you to you. Uh, thank you to you and the Geek Top 5 community. Um, you're, it's, you know, we're doing this show for you, and uh, we love hearing your feedback and getting the community involved. If you have questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, any of that, either for us, or for, for Kirk or Alex, um, all kinds of ways you can get a hold of us. Graham, what's the rundown on that? Please feel free to email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at geektop5, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5. Cthulhu in the Deep South, Space Lawyer, These Hallowed Halls, Sam Shade, all kinds of great good reads and good podcasts to keep you busy until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.